I am a judge, born, raised, and proud of being a Jew. The demand for justice, for peace, for enlightenment runs through the entirety of the Jewish history and Jewish tradition. I hope that in all the years I have the good fortune to continue serving on the bench of the Supreme Court of the United States, I will have the strength and courage to remain steadfast in service of that demand. Welcome back to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast using Star Trek to boldly explore worlds of Jews and Judaism. I'm Chava. And I'm Josh. And today we're going to be discussing gender and sexuality in both Star Trek and in Judaism. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm good. I, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty upbeat. I finally like saw you in person. We had like a, a backdoor hang for the birthday of she who is my wife. <laughs> Yeah, it was super nice. Got to see your little daughter. Mm-hmm. She's very cute and really likes it when my dog licks her hands. <laughs> yeah, we worked really hard to make her like pro dog because my wife and I are very timid around dogs and we're trying to not pass our own frivolous anxieties onto her. Like, <laughs> just like how I feed her chicken, even though I'm a vegetarian, like, don't take all of my baggage. You can start fresh with your own baggage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll give her other baggage, but at least not not dog fear baggage. She is very not afraid of Babka. Also, your dog is like the least scary dog in the world, and I'm pretty sure is afraid of my toddler. He's afraid of pretty much everyone. Poor little guy. And I feel like COVID has only exacerbated the problem because he doesn't see other people anymore. Oh, plus he's got his pet parents home like 24-7. Yeah, it's honestly, he's a monster. <laughs> <laughs> I think our Twitter feed needs a little bit more Bubka. You're right. I'm sorry. I should uh, I should post. We actually made a Bubka yesterday. So maybe I'll post a picture of the Bubka we made in conjunction with the Bubka the dog. And we're at Star Jews on Twitter. Yeah, check us out. Uh, Josh posts a lot. <laughs> <laughs> have a post pictures of our dog. I just haven't been on Twitter very much lately. It's a sad world in there. <laughs> I mean, it's easy to get sucked into like the negative Twitter firestorm of everything that's wrong with the world. But I tend to live in Star Trek Twitter. And we're like in the middle of a 23 week run of new Trek that so far has been just like, Mwah, amazing. <laughs> So Star Trek Twitter is great. Forget US politics Twitter and coronavirus Twitter, but Star Trek Twitter, amazing. And Jewish Twitter, pretty good too. I wish I was in a different like Twitter community because I'm in science Twitter. And for some reason, science Twitter is super political. And like you'll occasionally have the like, oh, I got my PhD today or like I published this paper that is not about coronavirus. <laughs> Scientists are very political on Twitter, which I think is actually uh, generally a good thing. Have them get involved. But yeah, it makes for a sad Twitter feed. <laughs> so should we get into the topic of today's show? Yes. 
We had a really, really great interview this month with Rabbi Andrea Myers, and I think that they give a really good framework that kind of brings us into the things we're going to talk about. So maybe we should jump right into Reb Alert now and then get into our discussion after our chat with them. Sounds good. Belay that order, number one. Red Alert. Wait a second, you're not Rabbi Andrea Myers. No, I'm not. <laughs> Genevieve Cohen, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. Hi there, so happy to be here. Genevieve, I know a lot about you, but I don't think our <laughs> listeners do. So can you tell us all a little bit about yourself? So my name is Genevieve Cohen, and I'm a professor at Centennial College in Toronto. I don't teach about Star Trek. and I don't teach about the Jews. But I do teach pre-health, a lot of biology and science in there. But on the side, I am a Jew, also a queer Jew. I do a lot of Pride Shabbats, and that really brings me a lot of joy, mixing my queer Jewish self outside of the professional professor role. That's me. We are going to be using a lot of words in this upcoming interview. Terms related to gender, sex, and sexuality. Words don't need to be scary. Learning new words helps us better describe things. And a lot of the words that Chava and I and Rabbi Andrea are going to be using throughout the show are words that like, I don't think I knew a few years ago. So maybe you can help us out a little bit with those. What do you want to know, Josh? Why don't we start with gender? All right, so gender can kind of be split up into gender expression and gender identity. Gender identity is usually someone's inner understanding of gender or genders that they can belong to and that they identify with. And this is each person's unique feeling or knowing. And it's separate from any kind of physical body or appearance, though it can be related. Some examples of gender identity might be cisgender, transgender, or cis and trans, non-binary, agender, gender queer. And then we can get into gender expression. That's more behavior, mannerisms, appearance, makeup, body language, voice. Some indicators sometimes for gender expression can be someone's chosen name. Their pronouns are some ways people can express gender. Anatomical sex. Anatomical sex is often something that kind of falls in under what people call biological sex. When people use that term, they're usually thinking genitals or chromosomes. Baby is born and the doctor goes, ah, yes, this looks this way or this way. Slap a letter identifier of the sex and that is what we call their anatomical sex. It's also known as sex assigned at birth. I'm a cisgender woman. Doctors had a quick look at what was down there when I was born and categorized me with an F. The first, though not the last F I'd ever receive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I can definitely tell you that as a biologist, there's so much more to what is biological sex beyond just the anatomy, beyond even chromosomes. You've got neurobiology, you've got endocrinology, which is your hormones, and you've got anatomy all mixed up together that can give you a whole range of biological phenomena. Sexual orientation. Sexual orientation, usually having to do with how you identify, how you experience sexual and romantic attraction, if you do even at all, usually involves your interest in and preferences around sexual and romantic relationships and behavior. So some examples of that might be uh, heterosexual, asexual, pansexual, gay, 
lesbian. These are circling back to two you mentioned before, trans and cis. I said I'm a cisgender woman. I was raised being told I was a girl and identify today still as a woman. And so since I identify the same as how I was assigned at birth, I would be cisgender. And cis and trans come from the Latin cis, this side of, or beside, and trans, the other side of, or across from. So chem nerds, maybe you remember this nomenclature, especially for orientation of functional groups across bonds. That's where I first learned about this in science, and then I learned it in the framing of gender and sexuality. I got one more, it's a big one, queer. Ooh, <laughs> queer. Queer is a really complicated term, I would say, just because of its historical significance. For me, I identify as a queer Jew. I identify as queer mostly on the sexuality side versus the gender side. Some people use queer as a nice little umbrella term, sometimes for their sexuality, sometimes for their uh, gender. But there is that historical piece where queer was used as a slur. So it, it's definitely been reclaimed by the queer two-spirit LGBTQ plus community. It's kind of an umbrella term for a wide range of sexualities and gender expressions. One last question. You mentioned participation in queer Jewish activism. Where is a place that organizations or individuals can learn more about that? So one organization I really loved working with is Keshet, K-E-S-H-E-T, Keshet, based out of the U.S., but we've been partnering with them in Toronto as well. They've got so many resources, mostly geared towards supporting camps and Jewish institutions to really learn more and diversify talking about gender and sexuality and they offer training and they also hold Shabbatons. Genevieve Cohen, thank you so much for being our explainer. No problem. So glad to help out. Talk to you soon. Welcome to Reb Alert. Rabbi Andrea Myers serves queer Jewish communities in Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal. They are the spiritual counselor at the All Your Wellness Center and a human resources professional. Andrea was ordained at the Academy for Jewish Religion, an interdenominational seminary in New York, and they've led congregations from the Rocky Mountains to the Borscht Belt. Rabbi Andrea Myers, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, and welcome to Reb Alert. I'm so happy to be here, Josh. Thank you. Thank you, Chava. We're happy to have you. Maybe um, as we get started, you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. We sometimes like to talk about people's uh, Jewish journey and Star Trek journey. So what can you tell us? <laughs> I've been watching Star Trek since I'm quite small and uh, just really kind of got into it with the very original series. And uh, through a series of life and unfortunate events and also interesting events, I had the, the pleasure of meeting both Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner, as well as uh, watching all the shows and learning a lot from them in terms of the time, and the cultural context and the Jewish context, uh, obviously, as well. Uh, in literature and in life, I've uh, appreciated Star Trek. We're looking at three episodes today that, well, I think two of them are Star Trek maybe trying to say something about gender and sometimes succeeding <laughs> and sometimes not. And one that I don't think they were really trying to say anything about gender, but that I think we read a lot into. We're hoping maybe you can help paint a picture for us about ways that 
Judaism thinks about gender sort of help us build out a framework and maybe some things that might surprise us a little bit? I think that the more we look at how Judaism has progressed in terms of its understanding of gender, you have to kind of look at the context of what you're looking at. When we look at the Torah, it will have its own context as something that's uh, contemporaneous with Mesopotamian literature. As we develop more into the halachic era and more of the understanding of something that developed in the era of Greco-Roman philosophy and the binaries of good and evil, Zohar Nechibab, the ideas of uh, man and woman as halachic terms, as Jewish legal terms, it becomes a little bit more complicated. Then as we get more into modernity and we understand more about diversity of humanity, it's almost like it'll, it comes full circle. For me as a rabbi and as a trans person, when we look at law and we look at understandings of law, it can be very limiting because when you have law plus a vulnerable population, you can end up really hurting people. Mm -hmm. When we talk about gender and sexuality, I like to understand Judaism as not just a religion of laws, but also this beautiful hybrid of culture and storytelling and legal proceeding as well. I want to just note that it's Sukkot, Sukkot. One of the things that I like to talk about with the people that I work with is a gender ushpazi. In other words, an understanding of gender as leaning on previous generations that have taught us a lot about who we are and talking about how it informs us as Jews and as people. And, and look, we're talking about Star Trek, right? We're looking at people who have informed different generations quite literally in the storytelling of it. But I think in Judaism as well, we can look at queer elders. We can look at people like Kate Bornstein, trans woman who has done so much to write about the more vulnerable parts of her life and the intersections of queerness and the intersections of all manner of different things that I think are really important to talk about openly and honestly. If we just use a, a legal lens, uh, you will hurt people and talk about gender and sexuality in a way that uh, it's not something I generally do. Growing up in an Orthodox community, I must say that I was really not exposed to the concept of gender at all as something that anyone would have a conversation about other than there are two. <laughs> it's really interesting to me that you can combine gender with Judaism in such a profound way. So my main question is, how exactly do you welcome somebody who is trans to the Jewish community? And how do you make them feel comfortable? Again, if we look at two different approaches to Judaism, you have a legal approach and then you have a storytelling approach. When I meet people, especially people who are gender or sexual minority in any way, shape or form, I think the most important thing we can do is the opposite of what we're taught in more normative Jewish settings. In normative Jewish settings, the first thing we're taught is right? love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that that, in mm -hmm. a lot of ways, doesn't help us here. I think that there are better questions that we can say, rather than approaching someone and saying, here's how I want to be treated, so I'm going to do the same to you. I'm actually going to ask you, what do you need? I'm going to look to two basic stories in Torah. And when I talk about Judaism, gender, and sexuality, there are two stories that come into my mind. Two stories that I personally reflect on a lot when I meet people who are trans, queer, just people who are fitting in differently. I'm going to think about the Garden of Eden, right? I'm going to think about Genesis 3, 9, where God says to Adam and Eve, Ayeka, where are you? And the word Ayeka 
meaning like just this this question word of it's not just a physical location right rashi will talk about this a little bit but it, there really is this sense of where are you in your life where are you spiritually where are you in this sort of meta of what's going on and then sort of listening for the answer one of the things i really appreciate about the god of the book of genesis for lack of better words is the inquisitiveness that God shows for the creation. There's so much, so much in opposition to what we understand from creation myths of Mesopotamian myth like the Enuma Elish, where the creations are pawns for the gods in Greco-Roman myth, where humans are constantly victimized by the gods. Here is a very poignant moment where the creator looks at the creations and says, where are you? What what are you? Tell me about what's going on. I sense there's something going on that I might not understand, or better yet, you should tell me about it, even if I do understand, because I want to hear from you, right? That Ayeka, mm -hmm. you know, it's a poignant moment. It's a very poignant moment of vulnerability. Here are these people that are they're scared. And one of the things you have to realize is a lot of the times when you are encountering trans Jews or queer Jews, they're not comfortable talking to rabbis they're not comfortable necessarily coming into synagogues all the time and mm -hmm. i think that it is the job of leadership to open the door and to hold the door and to actively welcome people and not just put up a sticker and say oh we're friendly it's like you know what where are your trans people look at your congregations and ask yourself these questions of where are your divergences is it well-meaning sermons or is it actually asking people the how do you identify here are my pronouns what are your pronouns what do you need to feel comfortable mm -hmm. how can i open my community to you do you want to sit next to me will you feel more comfortable sitting next to the rabbi do you need a, a break on membership tell me what i have to do to get you here then you have the ayaka story in genesis which i think is is the parallel story is again an inquisitive god asking the question of Ishmael, looking at the Ishmael story, which is a story that I think of as well when I encounter people who are experiencing something different than the gender norm. But when I think about the encounter that God has with Hagar and Ishmael, where God meets the boy, Asher Husham, where he is, there is a sense that it's not just a physical location, but when we meet people authentically where they are, there is um, a healing that happens. And I think a lot of uh, what we see in the Torah in terms of God and God's interactions with humanity is there's a moment for healing that can go on. There's absolutely that moment where God meets that God meets people where they are. And I think that we can learn something from that in terms of how we interact with people. First, listen. Second, ask questions that show curiosity and inquisitiveness and understand that people's narratives are not your narratives even if they're jewish it doesn't mean we necessarily understand their journey to us in her book the soul of the stranger joy laden makes the argument that her trans experience i'm hesitant to put words in her mouth but the way i understood her text was to say that her trans experience gave her unique capability to understand the creator you know going back to ideas like like ha'adam being created betzalem elohim and the rabbis interpreting ha'adam as encompassing 
male and and female and masculine and feminine and the spaces in between are those ideas that resonate with you and and do you think that your experiences have given you unique insights into the Jewish tradition Absolutely if i wasn't queer i wouldn't be jew i can say that with 100% authenticity with no hesitancy at all you have to understand i was raised an overprivileged white cis woman from long island I had no reason to defy any issues whatsoever. It was only because I knew I was different that I had the ability to ask critical questions. Absolutely. You know, and the more questions I asked of my life, I was raised in um, the Lutheran Christian faith. And it became evidently clear that uh, the place where I was wasn't necessarily as welcoming as my heart was. And that I... uh, was potentially going to have to be finding my own way in the world. And I left the church when I was 16 and never went back and went to Brandeis because it was (laughs) pre-med, which is a Jewish university in the States. They had a castle on the campus and the colors were blue and white. And I had no clue because at the time, the president of the university was actively soliciting non-Jews to come to the university. And I got lucky. I loved, it's a a wonderful university. I'm very, very lucky to have gone there because I was able to kind of look at my life and go, what do I actually want? What, What makes me happy? What do I need to do to be the person that I need to be? And for me, that was, you know, starting to really understand myself as a queer person. Um, in the late 80s, early 90s, that wasn't such an easy thing. Definitely. One of the things Chava and I struggle with, both on the Star Trek side of this show and the Jews side of this show, is <laughs> how do we deal with something that we love and feel connected to, but that sometimes really <laughs> clanks against our our values? In the Star Trek context, you know, we watched... An episode today that was great for 1992, and an episode that was pretty crappy for 2003. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, certainly that's something that, that we have to deal with in the Jewish tradition as well. So, what are some ways that we can grapple with that challenge, uh, both when it comes to our modern values about gender, but but also more broadly as, you know, people living in a, in a liberal society with liberal values. Well, you know, Josh, I've always been interested in exobotany. (laughs) (laughs) I think that there's so much that we can take from it. And, and the more we can understand something as a story told in time, I'm thinking so much of Heschel's whole concept of a cathedral in time. And I see Star Trek very much, even though he's talking about Shabbat, I see Star Trek in some ways very similarly. It it was such a, especially the next generation, that episode, The Outcast, I mean, we can look at it now and and critique it any number of ways, but we can do that with anything. We are the Jews. We can can (laughs) take anything apart that we want to. It's, It's what we do. But when you think of the way like a Jewish text is laid out where, you know, you have the original piece in the middle and then the commentary around it. I love coming back to that idea of we can discuss this and we can take it apart and put it back together. But there's such love and affection for the thing in the center. Even if we look at it and go, oh, boy, did they get that wrong? And oh, my God, their politics. Oh, boy. You know, why couldn't, why, why does every, you know, gender variant person have to be a skinny white person? Who knows? You know, even the guy who plays Riker himself said it didn't go far enough. 
you know, and he would have kissed the guy on, on screen less. I, I, I really admire him. As Jews, we're not afraid of our magic and we're not afraid of our texts. And we're not afraid of sex either. Some people, even when we're skittish about it, we're not afraid of looking at these things. And, and I think in a situation like this, if you see Star Trek as a Jewish text, right, we have the, the episode in the middle, and then there's all these discussions that are going to happen over hundreds of years, even long past us, that uh, will reflect on it as sort of source material for interesting conversations. It, even though the show itself is doing the same thing, it's sort of an inception of ideas that are reflecting on Roddenberry's ideas and Shatner and Nimoy's ideas of Judaism. So it's, it's a beautiful echo. Do you remember watching The Outcast when it first came out? Oh, yeah. And what was your, uh, your experience with that and reaction to it? <sighs> this is terrible porn. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just listening to this going, isn't there a soundtrack? In some ways, it was like a very awkward two-person show. I remember looking at it going, why... There were no pronouns back then. There was no understanding of it. All we knew is that in one moment, Worf was homophobic, and then he, all of a sudden he wasn't. It was so much a thing of the 90s, right, where the idea in the 90s was, oh, people who are gender variant or sexual orientation variant were just like everybody else, as opposed to the argument of the 70s, which was, oh, we're pervs and we're so proud of it and go to hell, right? And, and I think that's reflected in the aughts and the 2010s as well, where it became much more of a, you know, gay marriage is great, but maybe there's a heteronormativity there we don't necessarily have to have. But I remember watching that and with people, we had a little gay group that definitely watched this at one point and just kind of watching it. And everyone was like crying, like, oh, finally we're being seen. And I'm like, are you kidding <laughs> What did they run out of Romulan makeup? Like, what is this? Yeah. I hope I haven't spread too much. Oh, no. <laughs> Watching that episode, you know, I can't help but think of all the directions they could have gone. Like, wouldn't it have been interesting if Riker fell in love with a person from a society without gender, without them having a gender? You know, it kind of gets a little bit shoehorned into like a heterosexual romance story as a way of of relating. We've seen from press releases that this coming season on Discovery, which actually I think will be out by the time this episode airs, will have Star Trek's first trans character and first uh, non-binary Starfleet officer. So what are some things you're hoping Trek to, to cover in the years ahead and maybe areas that it's lacked in before? Well, I'm excited that they actually have real trans people. Just from a representation perspective, I know one of the actors is one of the first trans Asian actors, which I'm really happy to see. And I'm very excited about it because it shows representation in a different way. And the other thing I like about it is that it's here is the sophistication, right? The sophistication that I like about the Discovery thing versus Outcast is in, in the episode, The Outcast, it's a schmush. They are lumping together the concepts of gender identity and sexual orientation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? In a way that we can look at now and go, you know what? You can be trans and gay. I'm not even sure they tried to do a trans episode. Like, we might read transness oh, yeah. into it, but I think this was their very special gay episode. 
Oh, it was very much a special episode. And they bailed on the whole thing. So I really don't know what the outcast was trying to do. But as a trans person, I find it offensive on a whole bunch of levels. But I'm excited about this new thing because I think it's going to look at those two concepts of gender identity versus sexual orientation in a more authentic way that lets people have the vocabulary to discuss these things and non-binary in a, in a way to discuss it in a, a more fleshed out way than it was. So I'm looking forward to it. I wanted to ask you, because you had said before that you could tell us a little bit about your experience as a trans person in the Jewish community. Could you tell us a little bit more about your own experience? My journey has been... Where do I begin with this? It's been complicated for me because as a rabbi, I've had a lot of pressure to identify as a lesbian. I published a book uh, years back at a time where I remember one of the people on the agent team or the book team, I don't even remember anymore, I think I've blocked it out, who said, you know, we really kind of can't sell you as gender whatever you are. Gender vague, I believe, was the term that was used, <laughs> which was oddly apt. Uh, you know, why don't we just make this easier for people? Because at the time, it was understood that you just gay, right? But as my life has progressed, and as I have been more comfortable in my own skin, I have a different experience of gender. For me, I, for my personal self, I understand gender to be what everyone else thinks you are. So I don't really put a lot of stock into my own gender. I am not someone who will be able to medically transition for health reasons. I don't want to go on T, but I also don't identify as he or she. I identify as they. So even though if you meet me in person, you know, I'll be halfway down the block before you realize that I'm not a guy. You know, my journey has been one where hearing my daughters call me by my correct pronouns brings tears to my eyes. I'm just old enough, right? Like I'm in my late 40s. I'm someone who's had a you know a fair amount of homophobia in my life in different ways and, and transphobia and other stuff. And I, I feel like it's my job to hold the door for others because my, my own experience has been complicated. Do you want to talk a bit about Sukkot since we're... <laughs> In the season. <laughs> I love Sukkot. You know, I, I love how, you know, we think about Sukkot now. It's like, why is it even still a thing, right? Like, I love how when I work with, when I teach, right, one of the things I say to people, especially in Intro to Judaism courses, is when you don't understand what a holiday is or even kind of how to pronounce it, the odds are that it's about agriculture. Mm. So when someone says to you, what is blah, blah, blah holiday, and you know it's in the Bible, but you don't know what it is, the odds are super high it's about agriculture one way or another. So Sukkot, what's the meaning of it? Agriculture. <laughs> you know, in, in the Middle East, you have two seasons, rain and not rain. Like in Montreal, you have construction and not construction. And Sukkot, in terms of the book of Jeremiah, was just this amazingly festive time it was a party time there was matchmaking going on people just had a it was really joy to see people it was a pilgrimage holiday everyone got together and ate and drank and everyone just had a really good old time before everything just sort of closed down and i remember my first sukkot 
it brandized when I was considering Judaism, being in a sukkah with a bunch of, of LGBTQ Jews for the very first time and just being like, oh, my God, religion doesn't have to hurt. I can actually experience this as myself, as a person in flux, as a person who is in between about, you know, 10 or 12 completely different worlds and, and just have fun. So I, I think Sukkot is a time of reflection. It's a time where you look at who's sitting next to you and appreciating it. And especially in times like this, where a lot of us can't be with the people that we love for all kinds of reasons. The world is a trash fire right now. COVID is uh, an apocalypse unfolding in front of our eyes. And we don't know what the world is going to look like next year. But for our discussion around gender, I do talk to people a little bit about their gender ushpazine, sort of thinking about, well, as queer Jews or as Jews who identify as um, gender and sexual minorities, who are our role models? Who are the people that have informed us? You know, when you walk into a sukkah and you see pictures of people on the side of the sukkah, who are those people for you that you can look to and go, oh, you held the door for me? This person, I remember their story. I remember how they taught me that I can be whole and I can live my life as a Jew unashamed. And I remember them, even the ones that are no longer here for all kinds of reasons. I was thinking about the Deep Space Nine episode, Facets, and I think the core message of it is something that Star Trek has gone back to time and again, which is that we contain multitudes. Is there something in that idea that resonates with you? Absolutely. I went to a wonderful rabbinical school, the Academy for Jewish Religion, and one of their mottos was Shibim Panim Torah, that the Torah has 70 faces. I don't think it's just Torah that does. I think we all do. What I loved about facets is how it looks at Dax as this multifaceted person, that it was like their experience of looking at each facet unfolded like a jewel, like looking from each side at all of the symbionts that the old man had, so to speak. And it, it really did resonate that way. And again, kind of looking at that intergenerational piece, it felt facets of all of them felt like the Oshpazine. Kind of imagine if you could talk to your ancestors, if you could talk to the people who've informed who you are, what would you say? I love the imagination of it. Rabbi Andrea, thank you so much for joining us on Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you, Josh, and thank you, Hava. It was a pleasure being here. It was a pleasure to have you. Welcome back. I want to say thanks so much to Rabbi Andrea Myers for joining us. Uh, if you want to learn more about them, uh, Rabbi Andrea Myers is on Twitter at Rabbi Andrea. You can also check out their book. Uh, it's called The Choosing, A Rabbi's Journey from Silent Nights to High Holy Days. Thanks again, Rabbi Andrea. So, Chava. Yes, Josh. I want to pick on a little comment that you made in the interview. Oh, no, okay, I'm ready. It's not a dig on you. It's a dig on <laughs> Orthodox education. <laughs> I mean, I'm always ready for that. <laughs> so you, you said to, uh, to Rabbi Andrea that the only thing you learned in Orthodox day school about genders was that, like, there are two. And I definitely believe that you were taught that in Orthodox day schools. But I think that 
This is not reflective of many parts of the Jewish tradition. Really, Josh? Well, maybe you could educate me. Before I say this, like, I think it's important to note that trans identity as like an essentialized identity is very much like a product of modernity. And so it's a mistake to like, go read an ancient text and be like, the the rabbis were trans inclusive and yada yada yada. What I think ancient sources really show us is that throughout the Jewish tradition, Jewish thinkers have been aware of and engaged with the ideas of diversity in gender and sexuality. And that at many points in Jewish history, this was dealt with in a very thoughtful and pragmatic way that I think um, modern Jewish communities maybe could learn some things from, even if they don't want to adopt that entire approach, which would have all kinds of problems. The Talmud describes six genders effectively. You know, they they have, I'm bad at my Aramaic pronunciations, but like Zachar <laughs> and Nekeva, like masculine and feminine. But they mm-hmm. also have uh, androgynos, sort of like the, the word androgynous, but it has a little bit of a different meaning that we might translate as intersex now. A tumtum, ilonit, saris, and... You know, we know that divergences both in like visible sex traits, but also people's gender identity and how they feel about themselves are really different. There's always been diversity in that. Like, this is not a new thing. This has always been a part of humanity. I learned a lot recently from uh, a book I was reading called A Rainbow Thread, an anthology of queer Jewish texts from the first century to 1969. This is a book edited by Noam Siena and published by Printicraft. And it was a really eye-opening book. What Noam's done is gone through 2,000 years of Jewish primary texts and found, I think it's 120 examples of things that showed queer Jewish experiences in a in a very broad term. I think one of the overarching points that Noam makes is that these experiences have always been a part of the Jewish people, but there have been forces that have actively suppressed them. The book is like kind of neutral in the sense that it's usually just presenting texts and describing them. But if there's one call to action that comes out of the book, I think it's that we as modern Jews have some obligation to find the parts of our tradition that have been hidden from us, and maybe to expand on them as well. There's some really incredible documents in that book that made me rethink the way Judaism thinks about gender diversity. I think a more well-known one is that the rabbis in Bereshit Rabbah, a really important 5th century rabbinic exegesis on the book of Genesis, interpret Ha'adam as an androgynos, as a person who had male and female anatomy and possessed both masculinity and femininity. It's not that the rabbis were like trans-positive, but, but that they were aware of gender diversity and felt comfortable ascribing this diversity that they saw around them to biblical figures. There's also like ancient writings about Dina having a sex change in the womb by God, uh, or about uh, Mordechai in the book of Esther being able to nurse Esther himself. Is that in the book or that's like a commentary? No, not in the book of Esther, but in early rabbinic commentary on the book. Gotcha. And when the Mishnah talks about androgynos, the rabbis approach it in a very ordinary way. It's not with judgment or shame, uh, but 
instead, it's the rabbi saying, this is a group of people who are created in their own image, and we need to find a framework to apply Jewish law to them, things like how do we deal with the rules around ritual purity or the rules around inheritance that, as we know them, are sex-specific. Super gendered, yeah. It's like a very pragmatic approach. Some other ones from A Rainbow Thread, which again is like really a a great book, and I I really recommend uh, listeners check it out. Colonimus Ben Colonimus, the famed Jewish philosopher of the 13th century, writes like incredible poetry longing for a gender transition, you know, writing, oh, but had the artisan who made me created me instead a fair woman and like talking about the miracles that the creator has done. And like, if you can do all these things, why can't you make me a woman? Noam makes an interesting comment that like, you can learn about a community by the things that it chooses to prohibit. So he notes Avraham ben Rambam, the the son of Maimonides, writing a condemnation of men who dress up as women and live as women. But the way he condemns that group is done in a way that makes it seem like this is a very normal practice that's happening all around him in Jewish communities. Mm-hmm. One that I find really interesting is the story of Jacques Lafarge or Esther Brando. This is a mystery that uh, may have been lost to time, but it's entirely possible that the first Jew ever in what is now Canada was a trans person. We don't really know what happened there. This this could have been something more like like the Deep Space Nine episode Rules of Acquisition, where a woman is presenting themselves as a man and living as a man because they want to do things that a woman isn't able to do in their society. But I think it's, again, part of the story that like this diversity in gender identity and expression is present throughout the entire Jewish story. Wow, Josh, I had no idea. And we've basically had an absence of trans people in Star Trek, at least so far. Um, As we mentioned in the interview, Discovery is going to have a trans character and a non-binary character this coming season. But One headcanon that I've seen others take on is that in the Star Trek universe, trans people have been there all along. And that the reason we don't see them is because they successfully transitioned in their adolescence and are living happy and productive lives and people simply accept the gender identities that they put forward into the world. Now, that's not to let the writers off the hook, because obviously, like, there has been an erasure of the diversity of gender uh, expression and identity in Star Trek to date. But I'm glad that that reading exists for for people who want to find it there. Yeah. I mean, also, I do think that they really emphasize Uh, feminine characteristics in their female characters and male characteristics in their male characters. So there's definitely like a recognition of gender. I just don't think that there's much of a recognition of that fluidity. Yeah. Yeah. Should we talk about the Hebrew school homework a little bit? Sure. So we watched Next Generation, The Outcast, Enterprise, Cogenitor, and Deep Space Nine facets. And we're also going to talk about a few other Deep Space Nine episodes. Do you want to start with The Outcast? Yeah. The Outcast was a really interesting episode, I thought. It was really the first time we saw androgyny in Star Trek. And also, I feel like probably in TV itself, that is probably one of the first times you'd see any type of conversation. And of course, 
the way that they can do that is by introducing an alien species that <laughs> has no concept of gender or is actively suppressing it. What do you think, Josh? This episode is a mixed bag. I don't think that in 1992, they set out to make an episode about trans issues. I think that they were trying to make an episode talking about gay people and that they didn't really have the language or tools to do it, or maybe chose not to use those tools. Have you ever heard of Blood and Fire? No. David Gerald was a writer on the original series, animated series, and early Next Gen. He wrote The Trouble with Tribbles when I think he was like 23 years old or something <laughs> like that. And in early Next Gen, he wrote an episode called Blood and Fire that was going to be basically a way of Star Trek talking about the AIDS epidemic, which was really at its height in the in the early 1990s and just, mm -hmm. you know, devastating, devastating queer communities. And the episode was going to be with the Enterprise dealing with a plague that had lots of stigma attached to it. And to sort of, you know, really sell the metaphor, he also was going to include officers on the Enterprise who were gay. And I don't even think they had the plague in that story, but it was just, you know, a way of really selling what they're talking about and showing gay people in Star Trek. And the episode was kiboshed, and we don't really know who did it. It might have been Gene Roddenberry, might have been Rick Berman, could have been someone at Paramount. But that episode was nixed, and pretty soon after David Gerald left the show, there was a lot of conflict there. Check out the documentary Chaos on the Bridge if you want to learn about David Gerald leaving Next Gen. Eventually, actually, a fan film production called Star Trek New Voyages made like a fan TOS version of it that is like pretty good for fan films. It's in like the top tier of fan films. So Star Trek has traded a lot on its reputation for being at the forefront of social issues. But when mm. it comes to LGBTQ issues, Star Trek was like way, way, way behind the curve. Next Gen is airing 15, 20 years after shows like the Mary Tyler Moore Show or Barney Miller right. had queer characters. Pretty disappointing. And then, you know, out of that, we get The Outcast, which sometimes succeeds and sometimes fails. Yeah. Something that I disliked about it, this episode and also uh, Enterprise Cogenitor, is that the androgynous characters tend to be, well, both portrayed by women and sort of feminine looking. And I don't really understand why that is or how they decide to make that choice. But it definitely connects with like in Judaism, it's it's sort of more accepted to have a woman be a little bit more fluid about her sexuality. And I don't really like that. I think that they should have maybe made a, a point of having like a male character in there, maybe androgynous, but played by a male actor. So I can answer the question of who made that decision. And it's that Jonathan Frakes pushed for Soren to be played by a male actor. And Rick Berman said no. It's a little bit disappointing. They have a conversation about pronouns. I like that Soren says they use a, a neutral pronoun without a translation. And that, you know, Riker says, okay, and I'll, I'll try my best there. Um, I think this probably like predated a lot of the conversation that we've been having in our culture broke pronouns. So it's interesting that they approached it here. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But there's problematic things in this episode too. There is a certain gay erasure. When Riker is discussing gender in humanity, he speaks about it as if there are 
two genders and that all men are attracted to women and women attracted to men. And in order to draw on these distinctions, Star Trek plays on some like gender stereotypes in a way that's not so helpful. Yeah, like uh, Dr. Crusher wearing makeup. Right. And that being something specific to women. And even just the fact that Soren is is female identifying and that is just that comes out by the fact that she's attracted to Riker. Mm -hmm. Right. That's not even just like her identity. That's just it's like in conjunction with him as someone who's kind of bursting her out of that androgynous shell because of his masculinity that is what he's describing as the male gender. Yeah. With his broad shoulders. <laughs> they make Worf homophobic or transphobic. Yeah, that was also weird. Why? I think that, I guess, to sell, like, the very special episode nature of this, there had to be some character who was, like, prejudiced and then put aside their prejudice. And Worf often gets tagged with that. Like when we watched Bar Association a couple months ago where Worf is like the anti-union one, but then comes mm-hmm. around on it. Like if they've got to put someone on the wrong side of a social issue, it's it's usually Worf. But it doesn't even go well with like Klingon culture because like Klingon women are super dominant and uh, aggressive and they have like traditionally male characteristics a lot of the time and are often portrayed as too masculine for male humans to tolerate right so i just think that that's like not really in line even with their own ideology and we're jumping the timeline but in a couple of years Worf is going to be in a serious relationship with a person who has lived as both a man and a woman yes i also want to note that as is the case in cogenitor star trek falls into like the trope of barrier gaze which is that in shows that have few queer characters those characters don't get a happy ending soren is put through a procedure that is really painful to see where her identity is stripped from her and Mm -hmm. she comes out having her brain zapped although I guess there is the possibility that maybe this procedure has not been successful on her and she's doing like a Harry and the Hendersons kind of thing to to save Riker from being put in danger or to save herself from danger. We don't really know. I didn't really think so. I thought it was just like, yeah, we did this conversion therapy on her. That worked. And now she's an empty shell type of remnant of what she once was. Mm -hmm. But for all the failings of this show... And there are a lot of failings in it. I think that her speech in her trial is quite heroic. I'm tired of the lies. I am female. I was born that way. I have those feelings all my life. It's not unnatural. I'm not sick. I don't need to be helped. What I need is you to, is your understanding and compassion. Mm-hmm. That is like a radical call to empathy And I've spoken to people who watched that show in 1992 or subsequently and changed their own beliefs. People who were homophobic before watching that episode and then changed it after. Hmm, Wow. I guess where I finish on The Outcast is okay for 1992. Yeah, I feel like it sort of is okay for 1992 and it... It's trying to do something that is in the right direction. You want to do Cogenitor? Sure. This is the one where Enterprise uh, encounters some really friendly people who are a lot like them, explorers out 
doing some science and wanting to make first contact. And Trip befriends a person on their crew who they call it a cogenitor. They don't have rights or a name in their society, and others in their society view their sole purpose as facilitating reproduction uh, among others. Enterprise encounters um, a hypergiant star, and they see this like spaceship that is well inside the star's like corona or whatever. They have a really nice exchange about science, and they form a nice connection with that species, except for Trip, basically, who's who's upset by this third person that the engineering couple brought to dinner, who is just sitting there completely silent. I thought that this episode really was just commenting on the previous role of women. That's mm. that's how I viewed it. I didn't really see it as super discussing the concept of gender. It was mostly like, let's dial the history, dial back and look at this and have this be our way of addressing feminist issues, which is kind of weird in the early 2000s. Yeah, when the podcast Women at Warp, which is a, a feminist intersectional Star Trek podcast, reviewed this episode, I think where they landed was that like, this isn't a trans episode. This is an episode about human trafficking, where like a person has been stripped of their personhood and treated as like an object to be sold and moved around for a purpose of others. Yeah, I mean, the cogenitor is basically a slave whose sole purpose is participating in conceiving. Mm -hmm. yeah, this episode came out in 2003, which I guess I would have been at the beginning of high school. I don't know if you know this, but when Dr. Adam and I were in high school, the president of our student council came out as a woman of trans experience and transitioned while she was, I don't know, in grade 11 or 12. And it's a pretty well-known story. Like in the early 2000s, this was not a thing that was, I think, on a lot of people's radar. Like it was on the front page of the Toronto Star when it happened. And I think that as like a 14-year-old or whatever, I didn't have a vocabulary for understanding what was happening. And like looking back to like what I thought at the time, it was... Yeah, I didn't have like anger or hostility, but it, w it was like, oh, why does this person have a new name and dress as a woman now? You know, obviously over time, my my views have evolved or I don't know if evolved is the right word because I didn't even know what transness was. But I think there's a missed opportunity in that like... Star Trek informed my worldview about so many things about uh, race and equality and poverty. Josh, you were raised by Star Trek. <laughs> I, I was in a way. And if Star Trek had had like a really great trans episode, I feel like I would have been better equipped to like handle that situation and talk about her differently when discussing what was happening with my friends and cogenitor maybe could have been that episode. Uh, Cause I never missed an episode of enterprise back in those days. <laughs> uh, and I, I definitely would have watched it and thought about it and gone online to talk about it all night with my internet friends. <laughs> this was the first episode of enterprise that I watched. Oh, what'd you think? It's, it's weird. I did not find it very Star Trek-y, like much less so than Discovery, which is later. Mm -hmm. uh, it was okay. I liked it fine. I can see why I have never been recommended to watch it. <laughs> yeah, the characters um, are just a lot weaker. And I think it's really disappointing at the end of this that Captain Archer chooses political expediency over human rights or sentient being rights. Human rights. Why, the very name is racist. 
I think that I partially agree with that, but I also think that, like, I don't know, it's sort of like a moral relativism. Like, if I, I don't think that we should interfere with other cultures necessarily. And I think that he sort of was right about that. It's terrible that the, the result of that. And I, I really do blame Trip for that, though. Wow. To me, this episode sells him that Captain Archer is a jock who's unqualified for his job that he got because he has a famous dad, and he is the villain of the show. Seriously? <laughs> well, that's obviously not what the show wants me to think, but that's always been my interpretation of Enterprise. I mean, I think that in that society where everyone has already kind of normalized to one culture in the future of Earth... But I don't know. I think that here we have a lot of issues because we interfere with other cultures and, and their decisions on how they want to treat gender or sexuality. And it's a human rights issue, but it's a human rights issue both ways, I guess. Why the very name is racist. I guess where I stand is like if a person comes to you asking for amnesty and you know that releasing them puts them in danger, like you've changed where you're standing in the trolley problem. And, and now... Yeah. As, when they're on your ship asking for help, you you then have the obligation to protect them. And, and that's different that's from, true. Like, from like Enterprise going and, and landing on this planet and rescuing all the cogenitors and also therefore ending biological reproduction among this species. Um, <laughs> You're right. It's it's a question of asylum, like how, how to treat asylum, which I, I totally agree with you on that. I just think that Trip really messed up. He, in some ways he did, but I think his decisions are rooted in Betzalem Elohim, in the dignity of every single person, and that everyone has rights, and everyone has a soul, and everyone is created in the image of the divine and therefore needs to be treated with dignity. Okay, Josh, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and they do barrier gaze again. Yeah. Something that I really didn't like was the regression from the, the interesting uh, conversation about pronouns that Riker had with Soren, right? Here, Trip was just like, this is a female. <laughs> I am going to refer to this person as she and... Like, there was no conversation about that at all. Mm -hmm. And Charles was just assumed to be a she. And Trip just referred to Charles as a female pretty much the entire episode. And there was, like, some discussion about confusion about what he was supposed to be calling Charles in the pronoun sense. But not really. Like, it was just he had made the decision and that was... He basically gendered Charles. Yeah. Um, this episode's a bummer. Yeah, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. And like, it doesn't even end well. I think the only other note I had on Cogenitor was the parallel to the stories of the patriarchs in that in the Jewish tradition, in the book of Genesis, we also have, unfortunately, this concept of a person, perhaps a slave, being brought in as part of the conception or fertility, whatever. And, and that includes, um, you know, as Rabbi Andrea mentioned, uh, the Hagar uh, being the, the mother of Ishmael, uh, but also Bilcha and Zilpa, who are the, you know, the handmaids of Jacob's wives who are possibly slaves, it's not really clear, and are the mothers of uh, four of the 12 sons of Jacob who would, you know, create the, the 12 tribes of Israel.
Why don't we move on to Deep Space Nine facets? We picked this one because it's sort of a character study of Dax, and there's a lot to say about gender and Dax. And then along the way, maybe we can talk about some other gender episodes in Deep Space Nine. So to refresh people's memory, it's the one where where Jadzia goes through a trill ritual where each of her hosts is briefly put into the body of one of her friends. She gets to meet them and interact with them. I thought that Major Kira was the best in this. Oh, as the the tough old sage. Yeah, she was just so amazing. It was just so good. And Kira also has that kind of tough-as-nails approach, but I think that that Bejor is like mostly a post-feminist society where equality uh, between sexes and genders exists, and so like those fights don't need to be fought. Whereas Leela, which is a confusing name because this episode also has a Lita, Leela Dax was like an early feminist on Trill and fighting her way into the legislature. There's like a whole series that I think could be told about Leela Dax. <laughs> they showed sort of a diversity of different forms of masculinity and femininity within the the different Dax hosts, which I appreciate. Yeah, definitely. I think that Dax in general is just super complex as a character that way. In Rejoined, for example, <laughs> since we could talk about it, Dax is, at least the sexuality of Dax is totally fluid. And I would say that she's really pansexual. There's not even a discussion of gender in that episode. She is in love with the former wife of the previous Dax. Tarias, who's the one who's played by Bashir in Facets. Ah, there you go. Okay. They don't even really talk about the fact that they're currently both in female hosts, mm-hmm. which is, oh, I thought was really interesting and nice. But Yeah, Rejoined comes out of an era in the 90s where like lots of shows were having their lesbian kiss episode. Um, and <laughs> it, in some ways it's problematic, but it is like a pretty positive portrayal. It's barrier gaze again, because like Dax can't have the happy ending that she wants. But you're definitely right that like Dax doesn't care about the gender or sex of a person that she's interested in. It like it doesn't even occur to her. I'm thinking also again of the episode Rules of Acquisition, uh, an interesting one because it's the first ever mention of the Dominion way back in season two. And when Dax makes the realization that I think the Ferengi's name is Pell, that she's in love with Quark. She makes that realization thinking that Pell is a man. Uh, she doesn't realize that this is a woman disguising herself uh, as a man. Hmm. She just thinks that it's like a young Ferengi man who's in love with Quark. And I think it's also just a thing about Trill society in general. I don't know if you remember in the episode The Host from Next Generation, when Dr. Crusher falls in love with Odan, the first Trill character that we meet. And towards the end of the episode... Odan, the symbiont, is put into a different body and uh, a body of a woman. And she's still in love with Dr. Crusher. And Dr. Crusher is just like, no, sorry, I can't handle that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The Trill Society just seems very gender accepting. Have you seen the Be Like Core meme? No. Oh, this is from the Twitter user DeepGase9. I'm going to play the clip. After 81 years, I... I find you a Giamo-looking woman. Oh, Kazan, my beloved old friend. I'm Jadzia now. Oh, well, Jadzia, my beloved old friend. 
Yeah, so right there, Kor, this like 200-year-old Klingon, he's told in one sentence, I'm not Curzon anymore, I'm Jadzia. And he's like, no problem, total acceptance, just like a quick correction, moves on. So as Deep Case Nine says, be like Kor. <laughs> there are some places where I think facets kind of let us down in, in ways that are like not so connected to gender, just like as an episode, I think it fails in a few spots. I didn't like Duran or Curzon. I thought that they flubbed both of them. I remember really not liking Curzon. Yeah, Curzon had so much mystique built up around him. And I don't know, he was too like smarmy. I, I didn't buy it that like this guy would have been Ben Sisko's like best friend and mentor. And Duran as like a total psycho murderer i just want to kill everything i don't really get that either that that doesn't make sense to me because he's supposed to have committed like crimes of passion and it does it doesn't fit we see duran again in season seven of deep space nine and i think the portrayal there is a lot better this sort of connects to something that i read online written by rabbi david twitch He's a PhD, and he was talking about gender and um, sexuality in Judaism. What he notes is that the Talmud says that what is prohibited is falsifying identity for the purpose of saying spying on the other sex. So what I thought was interesting there is it's not even about like being a different gender or being gender fluid. It's it's about using your uh, using a disguise. And that the that the logical conclusion of that would be that by having an authentic gender expression that like fits what's in your heart, you are being more honest, not less honest. Yes. Yes. Right. Definitely. Oh, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I do think it's worth noting a couple of times that Star Trek has sort of ragged on gender divergences and, and trans identities as sort of like a punchline. The only mention ever of trans people is in Data's toast in Nemesis in Riker and Troy's wedding, and I'll play the clip now. Ladies and gentlemen, and invited transgendered species. And, you know, it's sort of like a Data being a little bit cute. And I, I think it's sort of played for laughs there. Some other ones that come to mind are like Turnabout Intruder, a really weak episode of the original series that's more of like a body snatching episode and plays on like gender changing as sneaky and deviant. And I don't know, I think we can just disregard Turnabout Intruder because the show had already been canceled and they were totally, totally checked out when they made it. <laughs> But also Star Trek VI, which has, like, Kirk being disgusted when he finds out that Marta was a shapeshifter and maybe not a cis woman as he understood it. I can't believe I kissed you. Uh, it's, like, pretty par for the course in the 90s, but, like, a disappointing scene to watch now. And Star Trek VI has a few of those where it's, like, as a whole, a really good movie, but there's things like the interrogation of Valeris and and that scene with Marta that really bummed me out watching in 2020. Yeah, I just think that that is totally mirrored in the way Judaism views gender, at least from the Orthodox perspective. I know that we discussed more contemporary views. Something that always bothered me a lot as a kid was... We would do the morning prayers. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this. But yeah. The brachot, the blessings that we say in the morning. So men will say, um, shaloh asani isha, which means that you did not make me a woman. That is the that is the prayer that men are supposed to recite every morning, men and boys. And 
Not for, in my sitter. Not in your, uh, yeah, not in your world, but that's what I would hear the boys sitting next to me in elementary school say. And I remember that the way that they would sort of alleviate that discomfort, right? Because in modern orthodoxy, there's definitely a view of feminism, like we want to include women as possible breadwinners and being capable of of math and science and all these things. But the way that they try to alleviate that is by saying, women say, and that's like, that you made me how I am. And that's just so, ugh, I just hated that so much. And it's it's icky. <laughs> For what it's worth, in, in my sitter, men and women say Elohim or something like that. Like, thank you for making me in the divine image. That's nice. Isn't that nice? I think that that innovation came around the 1990s in conservative and, and probably earlier in reform because they beat us to the punch on everything. You mean because they actually make all the reforms and then the conservatives are just like, yeah, that's actually a good Begrudgingly idea. adopt them 25 years later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's Dr. Adams' view. <laughs> but yeah, it's just a very, it's, it's a distaste for women, which is like, just so, I see it in the Star Trek episodes is what I'm saying, is that mm-hmm. like, that is, the men are like these saviors in these episodes. Like, if you think about Trip and you think about Riker in these two episodes, they're like trying to help this white knight, yeah, woman character. And they're like, well, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable in my masculinity. And I'm just like helping out this woman realize that she likes herself. And mm-hmm. like, ugh. Ugh. What do you think of Quark and Drag, which we had in facets, but again in the episode Profit and Lace? Dressing in drag, the exposure that I had as a child was actually on Purim. Hmm. Because it was it's completely accepted and as I would say is a fairly common costume to dress as the opposite sex. And actually the Shulchan Aruch notes that cross-dressing is permitted on Purim because its purpose is simcha. I don't know, I guess it's just kind of viewed as silly, which is kind of how... Uh, Quark is portrayed as well. What do you think? Profit and Lace, I don't like. And the biggest problem with Profit and Lace is that it ends up swinging into gender stereotypes. And, you know, this is something that's done in like a lot of sitcoms, like a character for whatever reason has to do a womanly thing and then starts taking on all these womanly stereotypes of like, I'm so sensitive, and why didn't you compliment how pretty I am, and and that kind of stuff that I think is like pretty harmful. In this one, they give they give Quirk like a little bit of the not gaze, like where he needs to like object. But I guess it's sort of Armin Shimmerman does a really good performance, and I like the way that the episode shows like that this male body can be inhabited by womanhood, even if just for a few minutes when he's Audred. So Josh. Mm-hmm. Did you find an Afikoman? I did, kind of. My Afikoman is about Odo and the way the changelings experience gender. I think it's interesting that like, we understand Odo as masculine, even though he doesn't have any male anatomy. He's just goo. Um, but Odo like clearly thinks of himself as a man. I'm not sure necessarily a heterosexual man because, you know, he does at one point link with Lass, who's also like a masculine identifying changeling and 
Odo had said previously that he thinks of linking as like a form of physical intimacy. So maybe not a heterosexual man, but he does think of himself as a man and, and that everyone else uh, accepts that. And the changeling leader, who the other characters call the female changeling, female being a bit of a strange word because like she has femininity, but she not like a sexual female because again, they're all goo. She has like a femininity that the other characters accept, use the correct pronouns as presented to them. And that's something that I, I appreciate Deep Space Nine has done, even if maybe it was done unintentionally. Odo is such an interesting character that way. And I always imagine what Odo would be like I mean, okay, so this is inappropriate, but I always imagine what Odo would be like in bed because <laughs> he is just goo, right? Like, I feel like that's positive. <laughs> you know, he can just transform into all these different shapes. I'm just saying, Major Kira <laughs> should get on that. Um, yeah, so my Effie Komen has to do with... It's actually in the episode Rejoined. Dax talks about her seven lives and uh, that she's like the seventh seventh generation of Dax. And what I wanted to just note was that Moses is the seventh generation of Judaism and is considered a super important part of our Jewish identity and the culture as a history. And I think that there's something to be said about Dax in this episode as either ending Dax's journey as having all of these different lives and generations by going against trail society and just like being the ultimate Dax. That's my Effie Coleman. Nice. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you for listening to Star Trek and the Jews. Your Hebrew school homework for next month is the Deep Space Nine episode Duet and the documentary The Accountant of Auschwitz. Canadians can watch this documentary for free on CBC Gem and internationally it's available on Netflix. So check that out before next month's episode. Our opening fanfare is arranged by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Our end credits are Desert of the Lost Souls by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. See you soon. See ya. See ya.